everybody. Welcome back to the Noel Kassler podcast. First episode of the new year, 2023. Broke out the... Uh... Broke out the new Martin, the new old Martin, 1968. Anyway, hope you guys are doing well. I shouldn't uh, bring this guitar on the show. I won't be able to stop playing it. (laughs) All right, I'll put it down now. Happy New Year and thanks for listening. Episode 91 of the Noel Kassler podcast is underway. And I know we got to work backwards because I did one right before Christmas. Got an incredible response. You know who you are. Certain people said kind words about this podcast, who I admire very much. I mean, I admire all of you, but people who artistically are heroes to me listen to this podcast and particularly enjoyed that episode. And, you know, that means more than you'll ever know. As you guys know, I don't do this for money and I don't have any ambitions (laughs) to do it as such. It's just, you know, kind of me speaking off of the top of my head about the things I care about in the time that I'm here, you know, because it feels like it is important for people to speak out. And it does feel like, you know, the other side and media in general is designed to to sort of make you weary and make you not want to speak out, you know, to say it's not worth the risk. And uh, we know what that leads to, you know, that leads to silence and silence is complicity. I came of age politically in a time where, you know, the the gay community was battling AIDS, which included my mom and all of her friends, you know, and we're talking the early 80s and uh, into the 90s, right? And ACT UP was formed, you know, and they used to have a sticker, I think, and it said silence is complicity because people like weren't talking about it and people were dying, you know, and, and there's a lot of that going on now. It's sort of easier to keep your mouth shut and not worry about people that are, you know, supposedly on the margins of life, which wasn't true. You know, nothing could be weaved more through the fabric of American life than than something as normal as somebody's sexuality and who they choose to love, right? And, and, you know, when you have things that are labeled to, to affect a certain demographic that you're then tuned by mass media and culture to not care as much about or somehow see as less than human or deserving of their fate or a threat to your well-being, then it's a really dangerous thing. And that's an age-old adage that's been used by dictators, you know, as long as we've been keeping records of that stuff, right? You know, it's, read Timothy Snyder, the Yale professor, you know, He talks about that. Eckhart Tolle talks about that, right? The egoic mind and sort of, you know, appealing to people's pain bodies and their base instincts to to get power over them, you know? And that was done in subtle, subtle ways in my lifetime in popular culture. And I will never forget it, right? Because I was in this paradox. I was a child of a gay mother. You know, I was living outside of DC in the late 70s early 80s in a neighborhood that, you know, Reagan would have raised if he could. And he essentially did when the war on drugs sort of heated up again a couple of years later and crack came in, you know, they basically locked up 
all the kids that I used to sit around in, you know, pajamas and watch car- cartoons with, they sort of became public enemy number one, right? In American consciousness, gangsterism and drug dealers and wolf packs and all these ways they demonized and taught, you know, mainstream America, right? White suburban America to sort of fear this rising culture, you know, this gun culture. Meanwhile, I never saw any gun factories, you know, or or cocoa plants in my neighborhood. So the guns and the drugs were coming in from somewhere. We now know the CIA was flying it in. But my point is, look over here, you know, fear this, be scared of this thing, and we're going to protect you from it, is, is a tonic that works on insecure minds and sort of toxic minds and people that have been conditioned generally generationally to accept that stuff forever. And we see that now, you know, we see that in the politics of the right. We saw that all last week. You know, if you were paying attention like I was to what was going on in the GOP, right? They couldn't pick a speaker. They were embracing chaos. You know, the worst elements of that party were calling the shots. (laughs) Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, you know, and 19 other members of the Freedom Caucus or however many there are, it's, it's around two dozen people. You know, they, they were not only holding the power of the 220 other members of the GOP in the palm of their hands and the 435 members of Congress or however many it is, they were holding up the business of the American people, right? And that's what's happening now, right? They're trying to get people to look at, you know, their, their transphobic hatred and legislation, you know, on the state level, right? And then it'll work its way into DC. But Arkansas just had a ban that no theater production where somebody is dressed in a costume representing something other than the gender they were born in is now illegal, right? <laughs> like, so you couldn't do a play like Charlie's Aunt, for example, right? Which is a British play that was written in the, the late, 19th century. And I played Charlie's aunt when I was at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And it involves a, you know, a young British couple and some other people, you know, some British kids rather, and, you know, some family members And you know, it's a, it's a funny romp and, and it talks about society and class and all kinds of stuff. But the main character that I was dresses up as this guy's aunt and pretends he's an exotic aunt to to get this inheritance or something. And, uh, you know, it's silly. It's a farce. And as long as people have been getting on stage, men have been dressing up like women, women like men, right? It's part of, it's part of like, it's a theatrical device. It has nothing to do with some sort of demonic forces trying to, you know, change your children, you know? It, it, it's like insane. Right. But but people buy this, you know, people are stupid enough to believe this kind of stuff. And that's why they go after culture. Right. That's why they go after movies. Right. That's why they go after plays, because they they don't want their kids and their friends and their neighbors to get any more enlightened. Right. And arts will enlighten you. As I say every week, if you sit in a room with other people and you laugh and you rejoice and you, you know, cry at our shared humanity, you're going to church, you know, and you're going to the real church. You're not going to the fake, put $10 in the basket if you want to be rich, you know, Southern 
Baptist bullshit evangelical church. You know, you're not going to the grifter thing. You're not following, you know, age old dogma that can be secretive and confusing and you have to do a bunch of stuff or you're going to be punished and burn in hell. No, you're going into the simple spiritual tent of feeling a connection with your fellow human beings and, you know, orienting your spirit towards your better angels, right? Because most people, you know, I'm not trying to say that people on stage are all angels, I'm saying, but most art is created to illuminate the human situation. And the best of art points out truths that we all share, right? And, and it explains our, our lives to ourselves, right? It, it, you know, who doesn't, you know, go for the, like, the record, you know, the music when, when you get your heart broken, right? Somebody breaks up with you. You're like, where's my Adele CD now, dude? <laughs> you know what I mean? Leave me alone. I got to sit for 18 hours and listen to Jackson Brown. <laughs> you know, that's what it was for me. It was an album called Late for the Sky. Best breakup song ever. But, um, you know, you, you need something to help you process it, right? To, you need something to sort of hold your hand to look at the scary emotions and process your feelings. And that's a healthy, healthy thing to do, right? Just like laughter is a healthy thing. And we need more of that, right? But the right doesn't want us doing that. And they want to sort of, you know, prosecute their agenda. And now they're in control of the house so they can do it up to a point, right? None of these bills will, will most likely pass the Senate. You know, they're, they're trying to eliminate, you know, the, the 97,000 or 67,000 new IRS agents, which are clearly... You know, they're just being hired to, to go after the wealthy 1%. They aren't paying their fair share. Most wealthy people save, you know, about 20% of their income that should be taxable isn't paid in taxes, right? The working class Americans pay 99% of the taxes they're owed. The wealthy people who can really afford to pay it don't pay their fair share. And that's always been the game because you can hire attorneys and accountants and people that can get you into tax shelters and tax havens and they'll take a cut but they'll they'll save you so much that it becomes worth it and rare is the wealthy person that says you know what i want to pay my fair share you know they're out there too don't let me paint a picture that like wealth equates you know some sort of like mendacity or evilness it doesn't you know but it's being abused. Our tax system is being abused. And the first thing the GOP does is try to take out that money, which will add something like $114 billion to the deficit over the next 10 years. I got an email today from the White House. I get these talking points, you know, and they have all the stats in there. I won't bore you with it, but you can do a Google search. And, you know, basically money we need is not getting kicked in, Right. Imagine like going to a group dinner and the richest person at the table is 12 of you and the check comes around and you all <laughs> want to pay for what you ate. And the richest guy, you know, who sat there and had a cowboy, you know, porterhouse, right, and ordered an appetizer and a bottle of wine, and he's going to pay a percentage less than you are, right? You're going to be like, screw that guy. I don't want to go to dinner with him anymore. It's the same sort of thing, right? I'm using a pretty simple metaphor, but Somebody has to pay for this, right? And the wealthy use a lot, you know, when it comes to corporations. Maybe I should change my language. Think of corporations. Think, think of a Jeff Bezos, right? 
Bezos. He owns Amazon. Those trucks run all day long on American roads, right? In New York City, they stop on the side of 2nd Avenue and unload in the middle of the street. It becomes a distribution center for the other workers who then go grab the packages and deliver them all throughout the Upper East Side. And this happens all over Manhattan. He's not paying a dime for that, right? He's not paying federal, state, and local taxes on that use of our infrastructure. You know, there's a percentage being paid, but not his fair share. So he's, you know, he and others, I'm using him as an example, they're sort of using things they're not paying for, right? And, and that's unjust. And that's one of the first things that Biden addressed, you know, in, in his landmark legislation that he got passed. And it's no mistake, it's literally the first thing the Republicans are going after in the House, you know, along with their rules package. They gave committee assignments to all these whack jobs. You know, the guy from Alabama who tried to punch out Matt Gates the other night. You remember him in the bad wig and the gray wig? <laughs> you know, he's now, you know, on the House. He's the chairman of the House Armed Service, Services Committee. You know, he was a ranking member before that. So it's not like he, you know, he wasn't in line for that position. Right. But he certainly didn't display honor or integrity or any of the kind of, you know, sober adulthood we would want in, in a sort of a military kind of attached congressional assignment, right? They're going to gut the military. They're going to gut veterans benefits. They're going to go after entitlements, which means social security. You know, it's game on for them now. And when I bring this stuff up, a lot of people or like, well, you know, it's not going to pass the Senate, so it doesn't matter. It does matter, right? Because they're wasting our time. It's going to cost a lot of money to write up that legislation, to have those hours on the floor of Congress dedicated to that debate, which will be just be grandstanding and trying to get talking points on Fox News that evening, right? So it'll be Matt Gates and Jim Jordan and you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's basically the head of the GOP at this point, saying their part and hoping Hannity or somebody notices and puts it on that night. That's we're paying for that. Right. That's our time. That's time that you're standing in the way of progress, of real infrastructure, of addressing the environment. You know, shout out to the listeners on the West Coast. California is getting pounded by rain right now. Ninety percent of the state is under a flood warning. That's 10% of the American population, you know, that lives in California that are in peril, that their pets are in peril, their lawns are in peril, you know, their rivers, you know, their bridges, all of this stuff. Climate change is on us. It should be the only thing we're talking about besides like feeding children and healthcare and taking care of the elderly and education, you know, that's it. And that's what Biden was basically doing, you know, all these humanistic things that had been put to the side. So Trump could provide tax breaks, you know, and, and rancor, you know, and, and gin up ignorant, you know, Americans that have been buying the BS instead of gently changing hearts and minds, which is ultimately what we have to do. You know, I'm so tired of, you know, the infighting and I hate the other side and blah, blah, blah. I promise you, I don't hate Republicans. You know, when I speak out, I do it in a kind of a comedic way. I hate the policies. 
I, I do hate what a lot of their leadership has done. Uh, you know, I hate Donald Trump because he, you know, he groomed a friend of mine when she was 12 and had sex with her in Jeffrey Epstein's mansion, you know, and I know a bunch of other people that he's done that kind of stuff too. And a lot of other people knew he was doing that stuff, even when he was on TV. And that pisses me off. That makes me hate part of the industry and the city I lived in that allowed it because he was a wealthy white man and the people he hurt didn't matter as much as the money he could make for others. And that's the rule we really need to go up against, right? Alan Weisselberg got five months at Rikers today. That was his sentence. He cheated on taxes for 15 years. 15 years, he gets five months. He'll probably serve three, right? Or they say he won't even serve. So he's not even going to do 90 days. He'll be out before the crickets are chirping again, before the cherry blossoms are blooming in Central Park. The dude is going to be out back in his life. He was never fired from Trump org. He's still getting his paycheck. They'll put him in a, you know, a protected wing for elderly people at Rikers. Not that Rikers is a picnic. You know, it's a horrible, horrible place that should be shut down. And it will be in 2027. But my point is, he knew the deal. He kept his mouth shut. He didn't really turn on the boss. I know people are thinking he did. He didn't. He's going to do his time, go back to Long Island, live out his days, a wealthy man. You know, and the justice, the wheels of justice are like, yeah, not this guy. He doesn't, you know, doesn't deserve that harsh a sentence. Khalif Browder, a 15-year-old accused of stealing a backpack, did three years in Rikers, almost a year of it in solitary confinement. You know, and we all know what happened to him. And if you don't, he killed himself when he got out after winning a bunch of money. It didn't matter. Money doesn't matter after your soul gets abused to a certain point, you know? And maybe that's what we should focus on. Like maybe, maybe we have to start valuing things other than commerce and capitalism and who has the most because our society is getting bent, right? Our, our moral, you know, chassis that we're all going down the road on is bent. We went over these potholes of, of corruption, you know, your Trump era, you know, this kind of stuff that's just hard to fathom and watching people get away with it gives you like a bent axle because we're not steering the car in the right direction. You know, we're running over living creatures because it's more important to get to that destination, right? Which is more of a metaphor, but basically how everybody drives anyway. You know, I drive like an animal's going to run out into the road any moment. <laughs> Most people don't like to drive with me because I'm not going fast on these little windy country roads I live on. Anyway, I don't want to get off on tangent, but my point is, you know, we have to value the things that, that matter the most. And I don't think we do that well as a society. And I think we've been allowing voices to, to sort of corrupt that balance, right? Because, you, you, you know, that Trump's appeal was that he would hold out the promise of you too would be wealthy. Like that was his whole thing was like he was selling this aspirational BS, right? You go to his casinos in Atlantic City, you too will be a high roller. You too will marry a supermodel, you know, and, and you know, sleep in a golden bed, right? And, and, and be admired by men and lusted after by women. <laughs> you know, that, that, that was Trump's whole thing. He would always say to people, you see the way she looked at me? 
Yeah, no, I didn't, dude. She looked at you like you're a fool, but he was one of those guys who was always trying to be around women for how it made him look in other men's eyes, right? And that, that's a dangerous thing. You got to watch out for those kind of dudes. Those dudes who just love women, you know, and they're sort of born with that gene. I'll admit I'm in, I'm in that, you know, realm, but, you know, and I, I don't abuse that thing, but, you know, I, I was, you know, I was a bit of a slut when I was younger, <laughs> you know, a bit of a womanizer, you know, cause I liked the attention I got and, and it, it filled a hole in me for a while. Right. But, and that's another reason you can get like two into relationships and all that. But I was never that guy who was like going to go tell all the dudes what I did the next day. And I could see those personalities emerging early. You know, if you're a dude and you're in locker rooms in high school, like, you know, you, you have awareness of, of how some men already sort of get worked in this misogynistic ways towards women and be like, Hey, you know, you know, be glad for, for what's happening there in your life, but it's not everybody's business here before lacrosse practice. And I know you're just saying it to make yourself look cool and to have these other guys admire you, you know, it's, it's a power play among men and it's gross, you know, and it, it was perpetuated in the entertainment business, you know, like nobody's business. But anyway, I used business twice. Anyway, <laughs> my point being the, the sort of more aberrant men and women in our society, you know, I wrote a piece on Substack the other day and I said a few good men, which is I, I try to name them after books or movies or songs. You know, it's just a thing to keep it clever for me. <laughs> and somebody was like, why didn't you say and women? You too, you know, I'm not denying that women aren't a part of this, but I'm a man, right? And I see other men not calling out men enough. And so that's kind of why I always focus on that side of it. You know, it's like as a comedian, you can talk about your own ethnicity, right? Or your own sex, you know, your own demographic, so to speak. But what business do you have speaking of others? You know, I'm there to be an ally. I'm there to listen. You know, I'm there to extol the virtues of female leadership. And you guys who listen to this podcast know I'll take, you know, working for a woman over a man any day of the week. Right. But I'm going to call out the men on their bullshit. Right. And a big part of Republican politics is this misogynistic, you know, douche bro, for lack of a better term, you know, ideology. And, and Matt Gates, you know, it, it's almost poetically fitting that a guy who sexually assaulted teenagers, which is what you call it if you're paying them on Venmo, you know, and even if it's legal age in Florida, you're paying, you know, you're using drugs with them, you're having sex with them. And another dude as the Greenberg, Joel Greenberg guy who was indicted said, yeah, me and Matt both had sex with the same 17 year old girl. Like, how is that dude not in jail, first of all, but how is he the one holding up the entire vote for the GOP? But then you look at the GOP and you're like, well, of course he is. You know, it makes sense that he would rise through the ranks and become the star because he knows how to work it. And he's working it against a man with no morality. Right. Kevin McCarthy doesn't stand for anything. He never did back when he was in Bakersfield in California and he was a legislative aide for their congressman. It's not Richardson. It's something like that. And, uh, you know. Kevin's first job in politics was working for this guy. And Kevin was the guy 
that would go around the districts and glad hand everybody. You know, he was smooth with people, blow dried, kind of good looking. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Like, you know, he, he was a people person and that was appealing, you know, as a young man. So, so this guy hired him and did all kinds of, you know, Kevin did all this kind of stuff. And then was it, you know, saw an opportunity for his own ambitions and ran and got that seat. And that guy did a great interview in New Yorker recently. And he talked about Kevin McCarthy and he he'd talked to Kevin after he went to Congress. And when Kevin went to Congress, he was like, I'm going to be speaker of the house. And then I'm going to be attorney general. Right. That was Kevin's like, you know, next goal. I think he's probably given up on that at this point. But at the time, that's what he said to this former Republican congressman. And the congressman was like, don't you stand for anything? Like, don't you have an agenda that you want to push through for before you do that? Like, aren't you here because you fundamentally believe that this change needs to occur and, and you want the opportunity to do that, to imprint, you know, your ideas on the nation? He had no interest in that. It was all personal ambition. And, and that's what the Republican Party has become. Time after time last week, you would hear these people Matt Gates at the top of the list saying, I'm running out of things to ask him for, to ask for, right? Because they had to, you know, they ended up voting 15 times. So after like 11 and 12, Kevin's like, I'll give you anything you want, right? And they were running out of things to ask for. But I never heard any of them say, my constituents want this as well. Or let me check back with my home district and see if there's anything I'm missing. See if there's any needs that aren't being served in my local community. There was none of that. It was all, I want this committee assignment so I can impeach Biden, so I can impress Trump, so I can do the bidding of the Koch brothers, you know, and gut Social Security, you know, to make a, you know, a feudal state out of this country, you know, to have everybody be serfs and a couple wealthy, you know, landowner, barons, factory owners. That's what it's going to come down to if they get their way. Thank God they won't. Because we said, you know, as, as I was saying, like, you know, the Senate won't pass this stuff, but the way people react to that, like it doesn't matter, it does. Because what, what they do in the House still matters. And putting those ideas out there puts it into people's psyches that like there are IRS agents going after them, that, you know, it is wasteful spending to have entitlements, that, you know, capping insulin at $35 is bad for the innovation of pharmaceutical companies. No, it's not. You know, people shouldn't suffer if they have a disease. They should be able to afford their medicine and their food and their rent and their books and their TVs and whatever else they need to live a quality life. You know, that should be the aspiration of our government is that everybody gets a baseline of decent, safe, affordable housing healthcare, education, you know, clean water, clean air, not getting 10 feet of rain in two days coming down your valley, you know, because we're, we're just burning fossil fuels like it's nobody's business and nobody's really telling us how quickly we need to stop yesterday. <laughs> That's how quickly. And I know none of us can. That's why this government time is so important because we don't have obvious solutions to these problems. We need our best minds and we need a debate and a consensus, you know, and, and to begin to broach these subjects with Americans 
And then we need to incentivize it, right? Here's my dream. Here's my pitch for you, you know, in dealing with this. We think of ourselves as very innovative, self-reliant people. And we are, right? Modern history shows us that. Americans and American industry, and I don't mean it just in terms of industry, but like industriousness, has contributed great things to the world, has made the world a lot better and life a lot safer and easier for countless people, right? We can do the right thing when we want to, and that's what we have to do, right? We have to say, hey, you know, it's a personal virtue now to conserve energy, to find alternate ways, you know, to power your ranch or your farm or to not waste food, you know, or to sell things that don't come in single-use plastics, you know, the right loves to make fun of straws and forks, plastic forks and all that stuff. We don't need that stuff. You know, the first piece of plastic we ever made is still on this planet. It has a half-life of like millions of years. It doesn't degrade and turn into compost, you know, it turns into microplastics and ends up in our oceans and our fish and then back in us. You know, they're finding traces of that in humans now and in babies, right? So we need to challenge ourselves, like, how do we do this? You know, how do we sell soup without putting it in a plastic quart container? You know, how do I buy a salad without it being in a big plastic clamshell? You know, and we have to be innovative in those approaches. We can't just look at the inconvenience of the initial switch, which is obvious, right? You get a plastic, you know, you get a paper straw and your smoothie and it crinkles up in the middle, you know, and you're like, damn, I can't suck anything out of this. Right. So it's not a great solution. Right. But there's some genius out there who's going to figure out a better way. That's why we need to fund education. That's why we need to welcome immigration. That's why we need all hands on deck. We need all talents. You know, it's like we need a national science fair. Like here's the top bunch of things that we're struggling with. Solve it. Figure it out. And I think if people got in a healthy competition on that, you know, I think of American men, you know, in particular, you know, that love this sort of like toxic bravado, we were able to channel that energy into like a sort of competitiveness between each other who made better mulch, who didn't waste anything, you know, who got more fuel efficiency out of their trucks. You know, no one's trying to take away tools that you need we're trying to find a better way to use those tools, a more efficient way, so you can preserve the things that we all love and that you claim to love and that put food on your table, right? Because these things are going to end. Business as usual, you know, it is over. We just haven't admitted it yet, but the skies are already telling us, <laughs> you know, everywhere, everywhere. The last podcast I did, the whole country was socked in and in under freezing, right? That was two weeks ago, last time I recorded one of these. Now you got California drowning in rain, right? It's not going away. It's in your face. And that time that gets wasted in Congress, you know, that's time we're not using legislative time, which is equal representation, right? Every state, every district sends people to D.C. and they all get in there and say, this is what my people need. And this is what my people need, you know? And you come to a consensus, consensus and you write bills that fund these projects. You know, you enact these laws to protect people. To ensure prosperity and health. 
you don't get a bunch of sawed off jackals like these GOP freaks coming in there just trying to, you know, do curtsies for the Koch brothers like Kristen Cinema, who's a Democrat, right? It's not all GOP people that are flies in the ointment. You know, Joe Manchin's a big old fly, you know, and he's been since the day one, since day one, since he was a rep in Virginia, even in West Virginia, even before he was governor. You know, he cut a sweetheart deal with the state for a coal mine he, he, he owns. And, and they use like this sludgiest, crappiest form of coal that burns dirtier that his mines happen to produce. I've talked about it before on this podcast. And he made a deal that like they could have the permit to build the power plant, but they'd only be allowed to buy from him, from his family's operation, which he still owns. You know, and that was in the early 80s, mid 80s. So that dude's been polluting for 35, 40 years, you know, and he's a Democratic senator. Right. So we need to look at all that stuff, you know, and, and we need to have the revenue to do that. Right. And, and that's what the GOP wants to gut right away. Weaken the IRS, you know, weaken the Justice Department, weaken the military. Right. You keep hearing them talking about the woke military. It's that same culture war. You know, what does woke mean? You know, that's what Governor Yunkin ran on in Virginia. He said they're trying to indoctrinate your children with CRT, which nobody's teaching it at the elementary school level. It's like graduate school level stuff. And it's correct and should be studied. You know, it's not something they're teaching your little Johnny in third grade or second grade. And what happened in Florida this week, last week, a six year old brought a gun to school in Newport News and shot his teacher, you know, and she's in the hospital fighting for her life, you know, after a six-year-old had the mindset to conceal the gun, right? Because he somehow got it from home into the classroom, right? We can assume he wasn't waving it around on the school bus or as he walked into the school or however he got there, he pulled it out at the time that he knew he needed to use it because he was mad at his teacher and he shot her. Think about that. You know, that should have stopped the world. The world should, should have been like, damn, it's gotten so bad in the United States that a six-year-old shot his teacher. And I'm sure they're outraged all over the world, but they're looking at us with pity, puzzlement, you know, and sort of probably abject horror that this is happening. We're the only nation this is happening in. And that's a new low in a year, you know, where we've had, you know, mass shootings in schools and supermarkets and, you know, everywhere you look. So we have to address those things. You know, we, we, have, to, we have to become cognizant and we are, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here. I know you guys know this, but that state, I bring that up because that guy was running on that stuff and he was doing it in a little sweater vest, you know, looking like he stepped out of a J. Crew catalog, right? Or L.L. Bean. And, and, and people were like, yeah, that sounds good. He seems like a nice, you know, reasonable man. I'm going to vote for him. And they did, you know, and Virginia is a, a very racist state. <laughs> okay. Most people who live in Northern Virginia won't admit that. I happen to know Virginia very well. My family lived in, in Lake Monticello. My grandparents were retired there for a while. You know, I, I grew up in the DC area and Alexandria is not the rest of Virginia. 
Arlington is not the rest of Virginia, you know, and you don't have to go out 66 or whatever that far to, to, to meet the real Virginia. And as you guys know, I was down there for a matter of days right before the midterms. And, you know, I was down in the Shenandoah Valley, you know, which is sort of like Western Virginia, Southwestern Virginia, I think. And, uh, you know, it was like, you know, it was like deliverance. I don't, I'm not trying to be funny or something, but I mean, it was just, you know, gun signs and gun stores and like Trump flags on every yard and giant pickup trucks. And, you know, it was like, what the hell is happening? You know, what, what is happening to, to a state that was a blue state, at least, you know, in terms of voting for, for a lot of my life, you know, their last governor was a Democrat before this guy. But they get in a Republican. He looks mild mannered. Moms vote for him because he's talking about schools. So it seems like he might care. And then what happens? You know, six months into his term or however long it's been, you know, a year or whatever, a six year old is bringing a gun to school in Newport News where he can have a gun. You know, a six year old obviously can't legally have a gun, but somebody had a gun in that home. And there's too many guns in American homes. You know, there's like 440 million guns in this country, you know, more than there's people and we keep making more and the oldest goddamn gun you ever made still works. You know, that's the problem with guns. They don't disintegrate, right? In theory, an old ass gun can still work. And certainly these guns that are made in the last 40, 50 years are going to work for a long time. And certainly all the AR-15s they're selling now are going to be operational. And God knows whose hands they're going to be in if we don't change this, you know, if we don't call out this cultural warfare that we're all under on the right. And that's what they're going to try to do for the next two years. You know, that, that's what the agenda is going to be. It's going to be these talking points that end up on Newsmax and Fox News, and they travel out. They're a product. You know, Brazil Brazil had a, a, basically a coup attempt that's been engineered by Stephen Bannon in broad daylight the other day. You know, at first I turned on CNN, it looked like a soccer game. I was like, what's happening? You know, why are all those soccer fans attacking that nice building? <laughs> ah, that's funny to me anyway, because they all had the Brazilian flag shirt on, you know, but uh, speaking of which Pele passed away since we last talked and when I was a kid in the 70s, the two, I would say the two most famous athletes in the world, it was Pele and it was uh, Muhammad Ali. You know, those were, those were the superstars. You know, Pele was, was like hard to even describe, you know, what a global star he was. And I remember in 99, I worked on a show at the Garden at an MSG. And it was this 20th century's greatest sports heroes. This is the first time I met Billy Jean, Billy Jean King, who's another hero of mine. But, uh, and I went on to work on the, you know, as you guys know, on the US Open and all this stuff. I was at Billy Jean's 75th birthday party. Like, but this is the first time I, I met Billy Jean. And uh, we did like a thing beforehand. It was like a, you know, a big group class photo and a cocktail party and stuff. And, you know, the room is like, you know, every great quarterback, um, you know, Jackie Robinson's widow was there, you know, Tiger Woods was there. He was a new kind of a newish star at the time, athlete, um, all these guys, you know, just massive, you know, Wayne Gretzky and then Pele, 
and Pele walks in the room and everybody's like, I just met Pele. Like, dude, I just met Pele, <laughs> you know? And I remember getting to shake his hand. And, uh, you know, that was a guy, I think when he retired, I saw his clip of this, you know, he was at Giant Stadium or something. And, you know, he talked about love. He said, love, man, love. Like he was a messenger, you know, like a Bob Marley or somebody or, you know, Muhammad Ali. These guys use their platform to speak on bigger things, right? Because sports is a metaphor. Anything I just said about the arts, you can apply that to sports, right? We all saw that last week, you know, this horrible injury last Monday night. You know, that was trauma. I was watching it live as most of America was. And I'm not even that into football, you know, and, and I've sort of made a conscious effort to kind of try and get into it again this year. Now that I, don't have, I worked on the Super Bowl for 15 years, as many of you guys know. So this is like sort of the time of year I'd start paying attention because I wanted to know like who I was going to be sharing an airport with <laughs> when I flew out there. And I was praying it wouldn't be the Patriots yet again. And uh, so I'm watching, you know, and this guy like is obviously like catastrophically injured. We all saw what happened. You know, it was horrifying. But you felt sort of the power of prayer and the will of people being like, this can't happen. We are not accepting a negative result. We are not losing this young man right now. We are lifting him up, you know, and, and, you know, I'm happy to report, as you well may know, you know, he's doing okay. He's going to be home soon. He's back in Buffalo at the Buffalo hospital. You know, he's tweeting and communicating, you know, and we didn't think we were going to see this young man again. At least I did. And I cried the moment I heard he was going to be okay the other day. Because I was happy for him, you know, and I was happy for those kids that saw that horror, you know, for a game they love, which is brutal, violent thing. That's another story. <laughs> you know what I mean? But kids are looking at it for heroes. You know, they want to talk about the guy who ran for the touchdown or the guy who threw the touchdown or the guy who caught the interception in school the next day. It gives us gives us something to aspire to, something to excite us. We need heroes. You know, we need myth. As Joseph Campbell said, the power of myth, you need metaphors in a society and you need symbols of, of, of structures and things that imply teamwork. Right. And strategy you know, and honor, right? That's why you have a level playing field. That's why you have referees, you know? That's why you measure the yards scientifically because you're trying to make it fair. You're trying to make it a stage for the human, human spirit to perform on, you know? And when they work as a team, they're able to do something bigger than the individual can do, right? Even though we always lift up the individual, it always takes a team. Even when you see a great tennis player, there's a team of coaches behind them. You know, there's nothing you do in this life without the help of others. Right. But we're doing that because we want to see the best of us. We want to see the best of the human condition. That's not saying their personal lives. It's talking about the performance on the field. We want to see something that feels like a miracle and it's done in ability and it's done as a result of hard work and honest, you know, fair play. And that's the best of sports, right? So I wanted those kids, you know, who felt the horror of that moment, you know, to have the joy, 
You know, we all need that as a nation. You know, I can't wait. I'm going to stop talking about this dude or I'm going to end up crying. But, uh, you know, I can't, I can't wait. I hope the Bills go all the way in the playoffs because we need that moment where that dude comes back out on the stage, you know. And, and there was something heartening about that. They kept cutting away. But, I, you know, you're watching these grown men cry, you know. You're watching them cry, these gladiators, so to speak, you know, in their uniforms and stuff, crying because their buddy was hurt and they felt powerless and scared. And it's okay to feel that way. It's part of life. Unexpected stuff happens that you have no control over. And it's scary, you know, and you're going to lose something you love. But everybody pulled together, right? They got out there on the field fast. You know, they had trained techs. They worked on them. <laughs> it wasn't pretty but they did it, you know, and, and I think it was good for people to see these tough guys crying. You know, we always see them celebrating and dancing and, you know, all that stuff, which is fine too. But, you know, it was kind of, it was sobering to watch that. And, and it was healing. It was healthy. You know, emotion is, is part of life. It's not something to, to stifle, you know, it, it's something that you need to become comfortable with, especially as young men. Right. Because we're, we're taught to not feel those things like big boys don't cry or whatever bullshit they tell you. You know, I cried myself to bed every night silently in my room as a child. I never told people I was sad or scared. I was the funny kid. You know, I was always smiling, you know, but I missed my dad and I lived in a lot of confusion, you know, as a child over what was happening in my family because my dad was gone. My mom was troubled. She loved me and did the best she could. You know, but there were circumstances where there wasn't always a lot of stability and there was a lot of fear. And, you know, it wasn't every night I'm being hyperbolic, but, you know, I remember more often than not sort of crying myself to sleep and then not doing it anymore, you know, then sort of reaching adolescence and, you know, eh, I'm just going to stuff it down inside of me, you know, <laughs> and pick up a cigarette instead or, you know. And luckily it still came out, right? That's where the arts come in, right? That's where you start picking up other ways to express it. Because at that point, in my experience, you've stuffed it down to the point that now you have to go in and mine it, you know? <laughs> you, you, you could have like gotten rid of it in a healthy way had you been shown, but now it's calcified, right? <laughs> now you got to go down in the dark, you know, in a tunnel with a little headlamp on and it's cold, you know, and you got to swing an ax at it, you know, and it may take a while and you may get sick doing it, you know, to get it back out of you. I don't know if you guys are still with me on that metaphor, but, you know, sort of that's what happens, you know, a lot of my time in the arts, you know, because those were my ambitions. I went to drama school. I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and stuff, and I always played music and wrote songs you know, I was always funny. I was never trying to be a stand-up comedian. That came later. That came so I could speak out about Trump and all that. Before that, it was improv. You know, it was, it was being in plays at the Academy. And like, I was, I was drawn to moment to moment because it was about truthful behavior, you know? So in my first acting class, which was actually in Washington, D.C., and these folks from Catholic University taught me. And, uh, that's where I had my first breakthroughs. And, and I was living with my mom and her girlfriend in Maryland. And my mom was heading into another difficult time in her, her life. And she would drop me off on Saturday morning to take these acting classes. I'm a, I'm a young adult at this point. I'm 21 or something. And uh, 
you know, there was a lot of trouble kind of going. And then it was the grunge years, you know, I was coming out. I had all this stuff, right? Your teen angst, your early adulthood, you know, all this kind of stuff brewing in me. And when I first got the concept of sort of like playing moment to moment, meaning when I learned that acting was really more about being truthful than it was pretending to be something else. Like that's when I got hooked into it, right? Because I realized it was a vehicle that I could process these those emotions. And I remember the first time I sort of had a performance, you know, and, and then you're just doing scene study. I hadn't been in a play at that point, except for, you know, in elementary school where I excelled, by the way, in the music man. But um, I remember that moment, you know, when you have that breakthrough, you know, and you cry or you scream or you do something that, that is, is an honest emotion. It's not what you think the director wants. It's not what you think the play is. It's not about looking cool, right? It's about like kind of going to a place that maybe you didn't want to go to. And then you find out you can go there. You can live through it and it can affect other people. You know, the audience will feel something, you know, if you're feeling it in the right way, you know, and not overindulgent, you know, but you're still committed to the action, you know, and putting it back on your scene partner, then it becomes something that lifts it up, you know, that, that lifts up the performance and it becomes this palpable thing. And it's, it's hard to explain and it's very ethereal, but you all know when you've seen it, right. You all know when you've been in the crowd and there's one actor or whatever, you just can't take your eyes off, you know, cause they're, they're being truthful and there's something deep inside you that recognizes that truth. And, you know, I saw James Earl Jones in Fences. That was my first Broadway play. And my grandmother took me, who passed away this year. It was like a treat for my birthday. She took me to see it. And, uh, you know, James Earl Jones, you know, and I think Ruby D was his co-star. And uh, when he came out, it was like, you could just feel the presence, right? And it wasn't because wow, that's James Earl Jones. I mean, there's a little of that, right? <laughs> Anytime you go to a Broadway show and there's like an actor you love, you know, you've seen from movies, you're like, wow, cool, famous dude, <laughs> right? But that fades away quickly. Like that's only going to get you so far. But when you, you sort of see, oh, that's why this guy is famous. You know, when you hear him start to speak and you're drawn in and then you sit there in the dark and you're taken on a journey, which explains somebody else's life. You know, in this case, it's August Wilson, you know, writing about black Americans and the struggles they have in their families that are just like the struggles you're having in your Irish Catholic family or Protestant family or your Asian family or your Latin family. Right. Because it's all the same and all drama, by the way, is about families. Right. You know, my hero was Sam Shepard when I was that age, like that was my favorite playwright. And a teacher told me this is about family, no. You know, this is all about family. That's what he's talking about. And that teacher was a woman named Jackie Bartone. And I, I just learned that she passed away the other night. And, uh, you know, she, she was the biggest teacher I had in my life. More than anybody, you know, I have a life that I've been blessed with teachers and I've, I've shared a lot of them with you. A lot of them are, you know, people I've worked with and famous people or whatever. Jackie was one of those people who's never going to be famous or was never famous as an actress and probably put more people out there, you know, 
to, to go on and, and do honest work than, than anybody I knew in New York City. She taught at the American Academy for decades. And, you know, it, it's still fringe and minor to the greater world. But to, to my academy classmates, she was a legend, Jackie Bartone. And she was one of those teachers when you first, you know, you'd hear about her, right? Because the academy is like, you kind of get the easier teachers first. And it's a conservative conservancy. So sort of conservatory. So the whole thing is kind of like, you're constantly trying to prove yourself, right? Like I started in the summer program, thinking I wasn't good enough. And then I did a summer and they, they accepted me full-time student. So then you're what's called a first year student and you spend the whole time trying to be a second year student because <laughs> then you get to graduate, you know, and then you get to be unemployed. <laughs> like then you realize, you know, how hard the whole gig is, but that's, that doesn't matter because while you're there, you get to work on your art and your craft and you get to be doing it with other people that are real serious about doing it, you know, and, and that understand it's a privilege every time you step on stage which is how I, I view it, you know? And uh, so you'd hear about Jackie. You'd be like, oh man, second year, you're going you're gonna to get Jackie or you might even get her first year. You know, some, some people are lucky enough to get her first year. And I got her first year and I think we worked on a fool for love or something. And uh, I did Agamemnon with her, but she was that teacher who would yell at you. You know, people would go in there all slick because everybody's you know, the best actor in their high school or college and stuff before they get to New York in the school, you know, so people are kind of, they think they're polished, you know, and, and what they're doing there is kind of tearing it down and, and sort of building you back up. And she was that teacher who was just like, bullshit, you know, that's bullshit. What is he making you feel, you know, and, and you'd learn more watching her give notes to other actors, <laughs> even though it was brutal, you know, than you did almost in your own scenes because she would get to these kernels of truth and break people down. And I don't mean in a, in a mean way, you know, I know there's that element too in acting. I, I, I haven't been around that, but uh, you know, people can become a, a bit like a, a gurus or something, but this wasn't like that, right? This was just like getting to the truth of, of your character. You know, and, and how it relates to you and your own life. You know, my phone's ringing. You're going to have to ignore it. See, Jackie would be like, hey, the phone's ringing. You're going to react to it or not? <laughs> so I'm reacting to it. I'm acknowledging it. The phone is ringing, but I'm not going to stop talking because what I have to say is more important. So uh, she would do that. She would get you to feel something, you know, that you were maybe afraid to feel on stage. And she would teach you how to analyze, you know, what was really going on in this scene and in this play. And what she taught me is so much of it is about family, right? Shakespeare writes about family, you know? The Greeks write about family. Agamemnon, you know, my big breakthrough, it was me standing there as King Agamemnon, Clytemestra is down on her knees in front of me, you know? And I, I do this thing where I just kind of gently brush the side of her face, you know, as she's given this speech to me, you know, in, in a bit of a, you know, like a, almost a sex, sexual kind of thing with like a little twinkle in my eye because the actress who was playing was a friend of mine and <laughs> pretty. And, uh, but it was truthful and Jackie loved it. Cause she saw that it humanized that moment. She saw I'd sort of done the work and I was vulnerable and it wasn't an obvious choice in that moment, you know, and, and, 
that was the sort of thing she would bring out of you. Like, Hey, look, you already have what it takes. It's you, you know, you are in your own way. And I remember you would have these meetings and, uh, you know, like they'd see how you're doing, right. You'd have these one-on-ones with your teachers. And, and she was like, you're, you're great. Like there's, there's not that I'm not, I'm not saying I'm great, but she'd be like, look, you're fine in terms of all this work, you know, acting is not going to be your problem. Let me ask you this. Are you an alcoholic? And it was the first time in my life somebody had asked me that. I was probably 24. I was 25 when I graduated in 96. So it's the first time an adult said, are you an alcoholic? And she didn't say it to me like judging. She said, you should get help for that because you're the only one who's going to stand in your way. You know, I've seen a lot of guys like you come through this school. You know, when you get out of here and it's not so structured, you know, you're going to walk into a bar on the way to an audition and you're not going to walk back out again if you don't get some help, you know? And she was like, AA is free. <laughs> you know, you put a dollar in the basket and you're in New York City. There's meetings everywhere, you know? And I started going to meetings after we had that talk. I've told you about my sobriety before. It didn't take from then on, but the seed was planted, you know? I still go to, I, I, I still go to meetings now that I went to when she said that to me. But you know, that's something you, you don't forget somebody who does, does you a favor like that, you know, and, and I'm not trying to mourn a friend, you know, publicly on the podcast here, but, uh, you know, when I, when I heard, I heard it on Facebook from one of the teachers, Jim Demonic, who's a wonderful speech teacher, you know, he said, Hey, this would have been her 87th birthday, you know, and everybody's like what we didn't know she died you know and she had had advanced alzheimer's and sort of dropped off out of communications with everybody for the last couple of years and i guess it was never really publicly announced i knew her husband very well too who's a playwright they had a little place upstate and for a while i was living up in woodstock and i was making soup i was making like organic soup i lived in rick danko's old house okay in woodstock in Birdcliff, which is an arts community in Woodstock. And I, I rented a house from, from a prominent family in Woodstock that owned the Bear Cafe, you know, where I ate as a kid when Albert Grossman owned it, if you know what I'm talking about. And uh, so I rented a family or a house from a family that had also rented that same house to Rick Danko when he was working on the basement tapes. Rick didn't live in the Big Pink and Socrates. He lived in this house. Robbie Robertson lived around the corner. Dylan had been in this house and played the piano. I'd hang out there with Don Fagan sometime who it's his birthday today. Happy birthday, Don Fagan. Don lived up the hill with his wife, Libby. And anyway, a real tangent, but uh, so I was living in this house and I, I had all moved all this recording equipment in there and was going to do all this stuff. I never did. You know, it was, it was in between those periods. I needed to get sober again, kind of. And uh, anyway, I was making soup. I was making like organic soup, potato leek soup. And I made this like giant vat of soup and I brought it to her and she was like vegan, cared for animals. You know, she had this huge property that she bought in like Sullivan County, you know, with a, with a little house on it and like 40 acres, you know, or you know, 80 acres, like massive and surrounded basically like by dairy farms and kind of rednecks. This is pre MAGA. But they were they were out there already, you know, and here's this Upper West Side acting teacher, you know, woman and her hippie playwright husband. And uh, I go to her house and she rescued animals, you know, so I go to her house and there would be like just animals everywhere. 
and like pigeons you know she'd be like that's my new pigeon i found him on you know on broadway and his wing was hurt so i brought him up here last week and i'm feeding him back to health and you know i brought her these soups you know and she was like you should make soup no like you you should open a soup business (laughs) it's just a memory i'm sharing you know i love jackie but she was like hey if it makes you happy make soup you know and she continued to guide me you know, it, it didn't matter, you know, she was like, how's your work? And it didn't matter what that meant, right? You know, it didn't matter if I was acting or going to auditions or playing music. She's like, your work is your work, you know? Your goal as an artist is to touch the hem of God, you know? That's why you're doing this, you know? You're doing this to sort of realize your best self, you know, and reach towards it, not in an egotistical my best self way, but in a way that helps others, you know, you want to see what this wisdom is about and where it leads, you know, and you want to sort of lead with love and your heart. And that may all sound hippy dippy. This is not how this woman delivered it. Okay. Every other word was an F bomb, which you love too in school. Cause you're like, man, everybody else is being so polite and actorly. And she's just fucking cursing at people, <laughs> you know? And, uh, it was great. It was great. So Jackie, man, I love you. I love you, Jackie. And uh, I, you know, I sadly lost touch with Jackie. That was uh, 20 years ago when I talked about bringing her the soup, you know, and we were friends on Facebook, but she hadn't been posting in a while. And, you know, we talk about her all the time, you know, my, my friends and I, and uh, you know, I think she would be proud of me today. Not, not because of, I'm doing anything that special, but I'm speaking from the heart. You know, I kind of know what my work is now. And and it certainly doesn't really involve, you know, making a bunch of money or being famous or, you know, look at me, though it may appear that that's what I'm about. It's not, (laughs) you know, like all the money I made last year in comedy, I spent going to do a benefit, you know, for Adam Schiff at the improv. But I got to, you know, I got to perform at the improv. And that's a good example, because when I, I flew out there to do that, a casting director in L.A. got in touch with me and, and I was in Block Island. I was on vacation and she said, hey, are you free next Friday? There's a ben- Are you in town next Friday? There's a benefit at the improv. Jeff Ross is hosting Dana Carvey. It's for Adam Schiff. There'll be a bunch of people there. You know, are you in town? You know, and I'm, I'm standing I'm in Block Island, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, yeah, I'm in t- I'll be there. I'll be there. And she's like, are you in town? I said, no, but I will be there. Right. So I spent all the money I made as a comedian last year, you know, flying out there. I was actually in the Hamptons and I had to go out there from the Hamptons and whatever. I'm not saying that because like, look at me or how altruistic it is. I'm saying that the paid work I'd done as a comedian and the money I sort of had in my, in the bank, I was able to use to go and do more art. Right. And my hour show had to be condensed to 10 minutes. And the lady said, they're going to love you. She's like, do your Trump stuff. Your Trump stuff is going to kill. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I, I'm going to be standing in front of Adam Schiff and talking about like the president doing drugs and stuff. She's like, you were going to steal the show. Trust me on this. You know, and I had to trust her. I was like, all right, but I don't believe you. And uh, I fly out there and I stay in a really nice hotel in Hollywood and uh, real like, a boutique hotel that was like set up on old Hollywood glamour. So I stayed in like the Omar Sharif room, 
you know, and it had like red velvet couch and a beautiful clawfoot bathtub in the middle of the room. I mean, it was just gorgeous, a little courtyard and they had a nice food you could order. And I just, I did my work, like my academy stuff kicked in because I was so nervous and I had to sort of, you know, take from an hour of stuff, like, 10 or 15 minutes. And I, she's like, it's going to be 10 or 20 minutes. You know, you'll know that day. And that's a big difference, you know, <laughs> for, for somebody who's not a super experienced comedian like myself, like, you know, I was like, man, you know, so a lot of writing and editing, and I just applied the technique and I applied sort of my program, you know, like AA, like, don't freak out, don't get too fearful. You know what I mean? Just, just know that like, you know, there's a reason you're here and you deserve to be here too. So I go in, it's an early show. The show's at like 6.30. And uh, so I take an Uber over there. You know, I walk in, there's a crowd outside. There's somebody, you know, at the door and they recognize me when I walk up, which is a trip because I was always that guy. You know, I'm a talent handler in live TV. Like my job is taking care of famous people, you know, when they come to a gig. My job isn't being the talent so much, you know, and and now it is, right? So, or it, it was in this moment. And uh so they, you know, they take me inside and I'm in the bar and it's all noisy, you know, at, at, uh, you know, at the improv, I'd never been in the improv. I'd never done a show in LA. This is my first time doing stand up in LA. It's still the only time I've ever done a stand up set out there. And she introduces me to Jeff Ross. And, and by coincidence, I had done a headlining show at the, uh, city winery in New York at, in the beginning of June that many of you who listen were there and it was a wonderful night and it's my hour and uh, and I happened to be like off stage talking to friends from the academy after my show, actually, you know, who I hadn't seen in, since we graduated in 96. And they came out to see me. They have wives and kids now and live in New Jersey. And, uh, you know, we're sitting around bullshitting and. Uh, and Jeff Ross comes by with some people and uh, I'm like, hey, Jeff, how you doing? You know, we meet each other. And then so I'm in this club situation in Hollywood and the host lady is like, hey, no. Cause she had told me the day before she was like, Hey, you know, I mentioned to Jeff your name. And he's like, I don't know him because everybody else was famous. Right. It was Margaret show, Dana Carvey, like Lisa Ann Walter, who's, you know, on an ABC show. Um, I'm, I'm forgetting uh, J- John, Jana Friedman. I think I, I know her name and uh, Christina Alonzo Crisella. I think I got her name wrong. All of these people have resumes more extensive than mine as comedians, and they all did a wonderful job. But uh, so this lady introduces me to Jeff, you know, who's I already know, said, I don't know who this guy is, you know, and he's kind of like, so she introduced me. He's like, hey, I met. Yeah, I remember you were just coming off a stage, you know, and I'd worked with Jeff on a million like roasts and stuff, but he didn't know who I was. But he's like, yeah, I remember you're coming off a stage. So that was the first um you know, kind of higher power moment where I'm like, all right, there's a little connection here that I, I cannot be so nervous. And uh, then Adam Schiff comes and we're all hanging out in this little green room upstairs, you know, and then the show starts and I'm like, God damn, I'm going to get up. And they say it's 10 minutes. Right. So I'm nervous, you know, and I'm standing there at the back of the room in the improv and I watched Dana Carvey go up and kill Adam Schiff opened the show. He did like 10 minutes. He's totally funny, totally classy, cool, smart guy, as you would expect him to be. And then a couple more comedians and I'm standing there 
and I'm nervous, but like, I, I know I have the goods kind of, you know, that feeling like you're nervous, but you want it, you want it to. And I remember thinking of my teachers at the academy and just thinking of like, you know, all the work I'd done and all the work they'd put into me. And I'm not standing there by myself. Do you know what I mean? I got ghosts behind me. You know, I'm standing on the shoulders of, of somebody else. I'm standing there because my mom, you know, when she, you know, slipped back into addiction would still drive me into DC to take acting classes, you know, because this is a big moment for me. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a big name guy. And this was like, this was a make or break moment. Not that I was getting anything just as a personal victory. You know, I was like, I either have to hit a home run. Like I either have to hit a grand slam or just never do comedy again. You know, it was one of those inflection point moments where like, if this doesn't go well, I'm done. <laughs> you know, Like I got so much invested in this moment. You know, everybody else kind of Margaret Cho came in with her dog. You know, she'd just been out walking her dog. Everybody else lived in LA and popped over on a Sunday afternoon. You know, I flew across the country, woke up at five in the morning, you know, in, 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 you know, Montauk or whatever, and made it to JFK and, spent two days in my hotel room prepping, you know, and eating juices and all this, you know, just kind of being ready. And there's a phone again. I'm sorry. And uh, I'm like, I either got to hit it out of the park, you know, or give up. And, and Jeff, I'd written an intro, Jeff sort of skips my intro and just goes, Oh, well, this next guy, I guess he's got something called the Noel Kassler podcast. And as he says that a couple of people in the front row cheered, they happened to be fans of the podcast and they started clapping and cheering. And that moment, you know, that little act of love and grace was all I needed. You know, I was like, oh, I'm not alone. You know, <laughs> I'm not alone here. And I walked on stage and I'm not bragging, but that was easily the best set I've had in my life. You know, everything worked. Everything was from my heart. I got to make my little speech at the end, you know, not a speech, but I wrap it all up to make a point, you know, of what 